The following resource is from Cambrian Park Baptist Church. For more information, please visit cpbchurch.org. Lord, you paint such an incredible picture here of what it looks like to be disciples who disrupt the darkness of the world around us. We ask, Lord, that as we see Paul and Silas and the impact they had on the world and the suffering they faced as a result, and then how you use that suffering in a glorious way, we pray that you would help us to be powerfully disruptive disciples like them. Like them. We ask, Lord, that you would empower us by your grace and you empower us by your spirit to more faithfully disrupt the darkness of the world around us for your glory and also for the sake of this world that we live in. Lord, we pray that you would be pleased to do this, that you would conform us more to your image and that you would help us better see you as the Lord who disrupts all of the darkness. Lord, we ask that you would increase our love for you during this time, that you would increase our love for others, and that you would be pleased to sanctify us even as we worship you today. Help me to preach, Lord, only what is pleasing to you. Help us to listen closely to your word as an act of worship is valuing you and valuing what you have to say to us. And we pray, Lord, that you would be greatly glorified, not only in this act of worship, but in making us more pleasing to you as a result. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So the title of the sermon this morning is Disruptive Disciples. To disrupt means to make a mess of something. And when I use the phrase disruptive disciples, I'm not talking about disciples in the church who are being disruptive. Uh, we've had that here before. That's, that's never a good thing. It's a bad thing. I'm talking about disciples who are disruptive to the darkness of the world around them. I'm talking about disciples who make a mess of Satan's system. And that is a very good thing. The passage that we have here today is a story about disruptive disciples. It's a story about God's disruptive grace being unleashed in the world through his followers. And it's also a story about the suffering that these men face for it. And it's a story about how God used even their jail time to miraculously bring salvation to their jailer. It's a fascinating story. We're going to contemplate it together today. And as we do, it's my hope that by God's grace, we're going to see the path of disruptive discipleship a little bit clearer this morning. Disciples are disruptive and will suffer, but God can use that suffering. That's the main idea before us today. Disciples are disruptive and will suffer, but God can use that suffering. We're going to see this in three points. First, we'll look at how disciples of Jesus disrupt the darkness. Second, we'll see how disciples suffer for their disruption. And third, we'll see how God can use the suffering of his disciples for redemptive purposes. So number one, disciples disrupt the darkness. Number two, disruptive disciples suffer. And number three, suffering used to save. Let's look first at what it means to be a disruptive uh, disciple. Point one, disciples disrupt the darkness. If you remember from last week, we left our missionary friends in the Roman colony of Philippi, the city of Philippi, which is located still today, by the way, in modern Greece. Uh, if you recall, it was in the region of Macedonia. Uh, Paul, on his second miss missionary journey, had received a vision from God uh, of a man in Macedonia crying out for help, to which Paul responded with a very prompt, yes, we will come. And he and the team go to Philippi. And when they arrive there, there may not have been a synagogue there. It's likely the Jewish population in Philippi wasn't huge. Uh, but there was a prayer gathering by the riverside. And when Paul went there, uh, he met the group of women that he ministered to. That's, of course, where we met uh, Lydia, our Gentile female entrepreneur from last week. 
Uh, and Paul shares the gospel with her. She comes to a saving grace. She's baptized, and she asks Paul and the missionary team into her house uh, to show them hospitality. And so the missionaries there, continuing to minister in the city of Philippi, and in Luke's thoughtfully selective historical account, he proceeds to narrate the dramatic events that lead up to Paul and Silas being cordially expelled, if you will, from the city of Philippi. Dr. Luke says in verse 16, you can read along with me. He says, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. This is a demonized slave girl we're talking about. We refer to someone who's strongly influenced by demons as demonized. It is probably more in line with the biblical description of these situations than the word possession that we typically like to use today. Now, maybe you're thinking, wow, well, that's, that's not so bad for a demon. We've seen demons do much worse, right? Here they are. They're giving free publicity for these missionaries. Someone who's likely already known to that population to have special insight is following them around and heralding them as messengers of God who proclaim the way of salvation. Yeah, it's not, not quite like that. When it says that she had a spirit of divination, that's referring to a demon characterized by special abilities. The Bible clearly teaches that demons are real, just as real as angels are. But unlike angels who are godly, demons are fallen angels, fallen like we are as humans. I won't go much into the history of the war that's translated divination here in the ESV, but the word was originally associated with Apollo, who was the god in Greek mythology of, among other things, prophecy and the son of Zeus. So the supposed abilities of this particular demon, I say supposed because we don't, we don't know the full extent or accuracy of the demon's abilities, but supposedly this could have included things like clairvoyance, which is the ability to see things beyond what is uh, perceptible with our ordinary senses, uh, in other words, spiritual insight, insight into the spiritual realm, or perhaps also the ability to predict the future, supposedly. So what is this demon perceiving here in Acts 16? Look at verse 17. It says that she followed Paul and us, crying out, quote, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now that sounds good to us, right? It does. But the words may not have meant the same thing to many who are hearing them in Philippi as they mean to us today. Perhaps they might not even have meant the same thing to the slave girl herself as she was saying them. How many of you have had the opportunity to talk with a Mormon before about their faith? If you have, you know that oftentimes you hear them say things that sound exactly like what you believe. They use the same language that you do, so much so that you can think that you have a lot in common with them. But when you start to dig down a little bit and ask them, what they really mean by what they're saying, you discover that you have two radically different belief systems, right? Well, what this slave girl, what, what she's announcing, when she's announcing these men to be servants of the Most High God, that was a term that Jews could use to refer to Yahweh, but it was also a term that the Greeks could use to refer to the highest God in their pantheon, likely Zeus. And similarly, when she talks about the way of salvation here, there were different understandings of what Salvation meant at that time. So this message could have been causing quite a bit of misunderstanding, confusion for those who are hearing it. And perhaps that's part of the reason why Paul responds to her like he does. Verse 18, 
Luke says that she kept doing this for many days. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. One dictionary defined this phrase, greatly annoyed here as follows, quote, to feel burdened as the result of someone's provocative activity or to be greatly disturbed. What was it exactly that was provoking Paul here? Was it that this slave girl's cry were distracting and interfering with the ministry work they were trying to do? Had Paul just heard this message one too many times now, starting to get on his nerves a little bit? Maybe he was greatly annoyed by the confusion it was causing. Or perhaps he didn't want their ministry to be associated with the occult in any way. Whatever the particular reason, in this disciple's disturbance, Paul, by the power of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, commanded the demon to come out of her. And it says that when he did, the demon came out that very hour. That means it came out immediately. And we don't know if the slave girl was saved. The text doesn't say. But regardless of whether the girl liked it or not, this was undoubtedly a work of God's grace. It was a work of God's grace towards her. It is disruptive, however. In verse 16, we learn that the demonized slave girl, quote, brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. Well, that's not happening anymore. No more demon means no more fortune-telling which means no more fortune-telling business, which means no more profit for the slave owners. In verse 19, it says, quote, her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone. It's great. In the, in the original language, Luke uses the same word for gone here that he used in verse 18 for the demon going out. The F. F. Bruce, he put it like this. He said, quote, when Paul exercised the spirit that possessed her, he exercised their source of income as well. That's true, and that's probably what Luke is trying to get at here. Verse 19, it says, But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. This is such a tragic response. It's clearly obvious that the slave owners could care less about the girl who was demonized. Why are they upset? They're upset about the bottom line. Right? They're upset about the financial ramifications of her exorcism. For them, it was all about the money. And these disciples of Jesus have made a mess of their fortune-telling business. So they bring Paul and Silas into the marketplace, it says. This was the agora. It was not only a place of commerce back then, but it was also the center of public life in many ways, and it was a place where issues like this could be brought before the rulers who were present there, these magistrates. There were probably two officials in Latin. Their name was the uh, Duoveri, and they were in charge of maintaining peace, keeping order, and handling civil issues. Now, before we get to the complaint that these owners lodge against Paul and Silas, I want us to pause to consider what exactly has happened here. Let's take a moment to think about this. As a result of God's grace being unleashed into the world through his disciples, an industry of darkness suffers. An industry of darkness suffers. In other words, God's gracious work in the world 
has a disrupting effect. And this is still true today, is it not? Entire industries today are threatened by faithful disciples of Jesus. See, the more God's grace advances in the world, and the more God changes people for the good, the more industries of darkness will be disrupted. Disruptive disciples today pose a threat to the $97 billion pornography industry. God's grace changes people from viewing other image bearers as sex objects to having a genuine love and respect for them. And when that happens, no more consuming porn, no more making porn, and no more income for the porn industry. Disruptive disciples threaten the $100 billion illicit drug industry in the United States. As we faithfully minister the gospel of grace, God sets people free from addiction, and he satisfies their deepest longings with himself, quenching the need to escape. No more drug dealers, no more users, no more business. And yes, even today, disruptive disciples still pose a threat to the 98,000 businesses in the $2 billion psychic services industry, which according to an IBIS world report, quote, includes establishments that offer psychic and fortune-telling services, particularly in the areas of astrology, aura reading, mediumship, tarot card reading, and palmistry, among other medical, uh, metaphysical services. God is still sovereign over demons today, and he still rescues people from participating in demonic activity. No more psychics, no more customers, and no more cash flow for the psychic services industry. But perhaps nearest to the heart of our church, disruptive disciples today are a threat to the human abortion industry. In the United States live action estimated that first trimester abortion pill and surgical abortion sales brought in around $395 million in 2017. God's grace puts that revenue in jeopardy. He uses his church to open people's eyes to the truth, to see that all human beings are created in his image, and that to take an innocent human life is murder. His grace produces in people a love for neighbors of all ages. No more willing employees of abortion mills when this happens. No more murderous parents when this happens. No more abortion sales when this happens. God's grace disrupts industries of darkness. And Paul, a disciple of Jesus Christ, disrupted the fortune-telling industry in Philippi by ministering God's grace to this demonized slave girl. I would say that all of Jesus' disciples are disruptors of darkness too. All of Jesus' disciples are. That's part of what it means to follow our disruptive Lord, as we're going to see a little bit later in the sermon. The question for you today is very simple. Are you a disruptive disciple? Are you? How well are you exercising the income sources of wicked industries around you? How do you do that, you ask? Well, it's very simple. We minister God's grace. God's grace is disruptive. Whenever you pray against these evils, or whenever you pray for people ensnared by them, whenever you biblically counsel people or disciple people out of these things, whenever you share the gospel with those in your life who are still caught up in darkness, 
or whenever you proclaim the truth or speak out against these things, you are being a disruptive disciple. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. You have experienced the the grace of God yourself. And you are empowered to minister the disruptive grace of God to this world. The only question is, is, are you actually doing those things, right? Are you being a disruptive disciple? I would argue that it's a more important question than you might think. Because disrupting the darkness is not optional for disciples of Jesus. There is no such thing as non-disruptive discipleship. It doesn't exist. Every week we have the opportunity to minister God's disruptive grace at Planned Parenthood. We pray for people. We plead with people. We proclaim the truth to people. And we truly want to exercise any hope of gain that San Jose's Planned Parenthood has. We want their employees to quit. We want murderous parents to change their minds. We want all their patrons to turn away. And so if you want another easy way to be a disruptive disciple, you can come disrupt the darkness every week of the abortion industry with us out of Planned Parenthood. Disruption is our duty, and it should be our desire as followers of Jesus. So pray, disciple, evangelize, speak the truth, and you will make a mess of Satan's system. You will. So disciples of Jesus, I hope we've seen disrupt the darkness. That should be clear to us. As a result, we should not be surprised when the world comes after us. That's exactly what we see happen here to our disruptive disciples in the city of Philippi. Point number one, disciples disrupt the darkness. Point number two, disruptive disciples suffer. Disruptive disciples suffer. Verse 20, And when the slave owners had brought Paul and Silas to the magistrates, they said, quote, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Notice the slave owners, they don't share their true motive for bringing Paul and Silas before the duaveri, which was what? It was their economic loss, right? They don't share that. No, instead they, they trump up a complaint, and the first aspect of their complaint was that Paul and Silas were Jewish. Yes, some scholars suspect that there may have been anti-Semitism there, and the upset slave owners could have been trying to stoke those sentiments. The second aspect of their complaint is that Paul and Silas are disturbing the city. And the third aspect is, verse 21, they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Now, the formal stance of Rome was that Roman citizens could not participate in foreign religions. That was, the for, that was the formal stance. However, when the rubber met the road, Romans could often participate in foreign religions. It was, participation was often tolerated so long as it didn't interfere with Roman practices. Of the three aspects of the complaint here, this is the only one that could potentially have any substance with respect to Paul and Silas. But even that is questionable. The owner's complaint, though, it rallies the crowd Verse 22, the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. The two magistrates, they likely didn't do this themselves. They were accompanied by lictors, which were officers that functioned kind of like the enforcers of these magistrates. And these officers carried fasces with them. 
Maybe you've seen these before. These are rods that were bundled together in a cylinder shape, and they were tied together with cords. And sometimes there would be another rod in the middle of those that stuck out, and it could have an axe head on it. And those rods, they could also be used uh, as weapons. The individual rods could be used as weapons, and that's probably what we have happening here. As a side note, Mussolini's so-called fascist movement, an authoritarian uh, dictatorial movement in Italy, embraced this object as its symbol, in case you couldn't tell that by the name. Now, if you've been in church for a while, you've probably heard about the suffering of the apostles on numerous occasions. But I hope that the reality of these historical events and these things that happen to real men, real disruptive disciples of Christ, I hope that you don't become desensitized to it. This is real suffering faced by real people for the sake of the gospel. Now, Luke, he's not graphic in his details, but he does provide us with enough information to give us a picture of the scene. He says that the lictors stripped their clothes off, so Paul and Silas are naked in public, probably, and then the two men are brutally beaten with rods. Can you just imagine that for a second? Imagine being stripped naked in public and to be beaten with rods. It was a severe beating, too. It says in verse 23 that when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Later in this passage, Luke tells us that the jailer cleaned their wounds. We all know that you don't have to clean bruises. Now, you heard the passage read. You know how the story ends. In a few verses, God is going to perform a miracle. He's going to release them from their bonds. But here Luke provides us with details that heighten the greatness of their deliverance by showing just how secure they were supposed to be in prison, which, of course, God shortly overthrows, and I would say he overthrows with ease. In verse 23, the jailer is explicitly told to keep them safely. And then in verse 24, we learn that, quote, having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. In other words, Paul and Silas are not getting out. They're in the inner prison, and their feet are locked up in stocks. Again, the details here underscore for us just how heightened the level of their security was, which of course shows the greatness of God shortly in setting them free from that, rescuing his, releasing his disruptive disciples from their bonds. The point I want to make here in this part of the passage is simple. Paul and Silas suffered for their disruption of the darkness. Disruptive disciples will suffer. They will suffer. Has the world really changed since then? Should we expect things to be different today? If not, then what does it mean if you look at your life and you don't see much suffering? Well, it could mean many things, but one thing that we would want to examine ourselves, one thing that we would want to ask ourselves at least, is to consider the possibility that we might not be disrupting the world that much. If we're not suffering that much, maybe we're really not causing the world much trouble. I would say that this goes beyond economic destruction. That's primarily what we discussed in the first point because that's what we have here in the passage today. But I would say that if we're faithfully ministering God's grace, our words, our actions, the impact that we have on others, it will run contrary 
to the sinful desires of many people. And just like the slave owners in Acts 16, people will be upset with you. Now, we're not at the point, praise God, where we're being stripped naked and beaten in public. That doesn't happen here. But we should definitely expect to face verbal abuse. We should expect old friends maybe to not want to hang out with us as much. We should expect strange, uh, 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 strained relationships with our family members and friends. We should expect the culture to discriminate against us. I know that when we go out to Planned Parenthood, it's very clear that many people are upset that we're there. It's obvious that they don't want us to be there. I want to be clear about something. The suffering that we face here in San Jose is nothing in comparison to what Paul and Silas faced in the Roman colony of Philippi. That's a fact. But as disruptive disciples, we should expect to face at least some retaliation from the world. We should face something. I'm not saying that you should go out and look for suffering. (laughs) Not at all. But what I am saying is that people who make a mess of Satan's system suffer for it. That's the way this world works. And part of me wonders that the reason that we don't suffer more here is because we're not more at odds with the purposes of the world. We're not really disrupting much. The path of disruptive discipleship is a path of suffering. Do you want a good litmus test for how disruptive you are as a disciple of Christ? How much are you suffering? Look at how much you're suffering. We must be willing to suffer in order to disrupt. Now, before we move on to the third point, I want you to notice one thing about how our disciples respond to suffering here. Look at verse 25. It says that at about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. So here these men have been brutally beaten. They're locked up in the inner prison. Their feet are fastened in stocks, and what? Are they bemoaning their condition? No, they're singing and they're praying to God. They're singing and they're praying. Perhaps they were expressing their dependence on God, or maybe they were worshiping God together, or maybe both, who knows. It also says that the prisoners were listening to them. Think about that. It was around the middle of the night in jail. And whether the prisoners liked it or not, they're being exposed to Paul and Silas's engagement with the living God. An interaction which would no doubt help them connect the event that follows the miraculous earthquake to this God and to these men. But I think that this is a good model for us. And I want us to touch on it briefly before we move on. When we suffer for our disruption, I think that we should respond in a similar manner. I think that we should strive to sing to God together and pray to God together. We should depend on him for strength, for wisdom, for deliverance. And we should worship him for his sovereignty. He's sovereign over the suffering. We should rejoice in his all-satisfying goodness. Whatever happens to us in this world, we're satisfied in him. And we should praise him for the privilege of getting to suffer for his glory. Let's respond to suffering with prayer and song like our disruptive disciples do here. Now, I think that if the story were to end here, this would still have been a great story, and there is certainly much to edify us just from the passage that we've looked at so far. Uh, But the story doesn't end here. God, who is sovereign over their suffering, uses even their jail time to bring salvation to people, which takes us to our third point. 
First, we've seen the disciples of Jesus disrupt the darkness. Second, we've seen that disciples of Jesus should expect to suffer for their disruption. And when we do, we should take a cue from Paul and Silas and respond by turning to God in prayer and song. And third, as we'll see next, God can use the suffering of disruptive disciples to accomplish his purposes. Point number three, suffering used to save. So as Paul and Silas were singing and praying to God, verse 26 says that suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. God literally shakes the earth. It's a great earthquake, the text says. An earthquake that shakes the very foundations of the prison they're in. And either by the force of the quake or by God's supernatural power, the doors were immediately opened and all the bonds were undone. This miraculous jailbreaking earthquake was no doubt a demonstration of God that Paul and Silas were in the right and it also validated their association with the living God, with the very God who controls the tectonic plates of the earth. Verse 27 says that when, when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. If they had escaped the jailer, he might have been held responsible for it and executed as a result. And so he may have perceived suicide as a more honorable option here. So this jailer, he has his sword out. He's about to take his own life. In verse 28, but Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself. For we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Wow. Can you imagine the relief that this jailer must have felt? Here he is. He's about to take his own life. And now what he thought had been a potentially life-ending disaster had actually, in fact, been averted. This is, by the way, certainly an odd jailbreak. It's odd because nobody left the jail. Everyone's still there. But the miracle served another purpose. The jailer clearly recognized that Paul and Silas were associated with the God behind this earthquake. So he comes himself quaking before them, just like the earth was. Why? Did he have a sense of who he was imprisoning? Or maybe he had a sense of the God who was at work here? Or did he just, did he feel overwhelmed with the suicide that could have been, but hadn't? Whatever the reason, it's clear that God shook more than the jail, the, the jail that night. He actually shook the jailer himself. It says in verse 30 that, that the jailer brought them out. He brought Paul and Silas out, and he said to them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? That's the right question to ask people who are associated with the living God, is it not? What must I do to be saved? Verse 31, and they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. This is remarkable. The suffering of our disruptive disciples landed them in jail. But God had missional purposes for them there. God used the jail time of Paul and Silas to perform a miracle there and to bring the gospel to this 
jailer in Philippi. And not only that, but to bring the gospel to the jailer's entire household. Apparently the jailer brought his household to Paul and Silas, and then they shared the word with them all. What was the message you think that Paul and Silas shared with them? It was no doubt the gospel. He asked them, what must I do to be saved? And surely Paul and Silas share the good news that salvation is found in the Lord Jesus. It's found in the person of Jesus. Salvation from what? What must I do to be saved? What is it that I need to be saved from? Salvation from sin, salvation from Satan, and salvation from death. You see, Jesus, Jesus is God's greatest disruptor. He is the agent of God's disruptive grace because he is God himself in the flesh. God himself become a man, coming into this world as a man to disrupt and upend every single evil thing this world stands for. He bankrupts every evil industry and he lays waste every evil desire. And the reason that we are disruptors of darkness is precisely because we are disciples of our disruptive Lord. It is the power of his disruptive grace that we minister to others. Of course, if you're a Christian, you know that we were not always like that. At one time, the Bible says we were hostile to God, that we were like the slave owners in this passage, the owners of this demonized slave girl. We didn't care about others. We were greedy only for our own gain, for our own glory. We were the ones who ourselves were in the grip of the evil one. We were enslaved to the sinful desires of our heart, and we lived with the just punishment of hell looming over our heads. We need to realize that. We need to remember that. These are forces that are so strong, forces that are so terrible, that they seemed absolutely impossible to disrupt. And they were for us, but for God they weren't. And that is the good news. More than any other ministry, Jesus' ministry disrupted the darkness. He drove out demons like Paul, but unlike Paul, he didn't use the name or authority of someone else to do it. His authority was sufficient. And like our disruptive disciples in Acts 16, Jesus suffered greatly for disrupting the darkness. He was unjustly condemned under a rallied crowd. He was severely beaten. And then he was nailed to a Roman cross to die. And like our dis disruptive disciples in Acts 16, God used his suffering he used the suffering brought by Jesus' disruption to accomplish his redemptive purposes. It was through Jesus' suffering, specifically a suffering on the cross, that God disrupted our destiny of eternal death, that he stood between us and our certain doom, Jesus taking it in our place. It was through his suffering that God disrupted our sinful nature, by crucifying it on the cross with Christ. And it was through his suffering that Jesus disrupted the power of the evil one by freeing men from his destructive influence. And three days later, Jesus rose again and he raised us up with him to be his people. Now we are his body on earth. We are the body of our disruptive Lord sent out into the world to minister 
his disruptive grace, his disruptive saving grace. Jesus, God in the flesh, is the ultimate disruptor. He is the ultimate disruptor. And when he comes again, every evil industry left undisrupted by his saving grace will be ultimately disrupted through his judgment forever. Now, if you're listening to this, the question of the jailer is the right one to ask, is it not? Verse 30, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to experience his salvation rather than his disrupting judgment? The answer is the same for you. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Believe in him. It's that simple. Believe doesn't just mean to believe about him. It means to believe in him, to trust in him personally to save you. Salvation is so simple. The Bible says that we are saved simply by trusting in Christ, by repenting of our sin and trusting in him. Believe in him. He will save you and he will save your household if they do the same. The jailer's household did. Verse 33, it says that he took them the same hour, took Paul and Silas the same hour, and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. The church father, John Chrysostom, he, he put it well when he said, quote, that the jailer washed them and was washed. The prisoners he washed from their stripes, himself was washed from their sins. That's beautiful, isn't it? Now remember, this is all happening in the middle of the night. It's pitch black outside. You say, couldn't they, couldn't they just wait until the next day to be baptized? Why'd they have to do it right then? Now, see, baptism in the New Testament is inseparable from conversion. It's the recognition and the sign that someone's sins have been washed away and that they have been united to Jesus. However, as important and as immediate as baptism is, notice that the caring for the prisoner's wounds took precedence over their baptism. The jailer's first response to the gospel was not baptism, but love. Love for the brethren, washing their wounds. And then, after that, he was baptized. The first response is love. Verse 34, it says, Then the jailer brought them up into his house. He's showing them hospitality, just like Lydia did when, when she was saved. He brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright discussed the pattern of persecution and then vindication that we see not only here in this passage, but that's repeated throughout the rest of the book of Acts 2. And he remarks, quote, he says, This isn't a cause for gloom. It is a reason for celebration. He says, The nighttime feast in the jailer's house sets the pattern for the bizarre celebration of God's kingdom from that day to this. The world is turning the right way up at last, and what better way of showing it than a Roman jailer throwing a midnight party for two battered but rejoicing heralds of King Jesus. He's right. The path of disruptive discipleship is not a cause for gloom, but for celebration. Yes, it is a path of suffering, but God can accomplish his redemptive purposes even in the context of that suffering. And when he does, what a glorious thing it is. What a beautiful thing it is. 
there is a strange and peculiar beauty to all of this, that there in the Roman colony of Philippi, in the middle of the night, this jailer and his family are all up. They've all heard the message of salvation from the lips of wounded prisoners in his own jail, and they believed, were baptized, and now extend hospitality to them, bringing them into their house. And the passage says there's a note of celebration in the air as the entire household rejoices together in the salvation that they have received. It's beautiful. God used the imprisonment of Paul and Silas to accomplish his redemptive purposes. Performed a miracle there that would bring this jailer and his family into the kingdom of God. One commentator rightly noted, he said, quote, the miracle served not to deliver Paul and Silas, but rather to deliver the jailer. That's true. Paul and Silas, they were not ultimately delivered. They go back to prison shortly. But the jailer and his family were set free. Who knows, perhaps the miracle was also a powerful witness to the other prisoners there that night and to those who heard about this story later. Now, when we step back and look at the passage up to this point, we've seen that disciples of Jesus are disruptive and that they will suffer. But God can use that suffering. Now, when I say that God used their suffering in this passage, it's not so much that the suffering itself was what brought the jailer to a saving grace. Rather, it was their suffering, their imprisonment, that gave them a special opportunity to witness to this jailer. It was an opportunity that God used to perform a miracle and to bring salvation to that household. What does that mean for us? Does that mean that if we're thrown in jail, we can expect God to miraculously release us so that we can be a powerful witness to the jailers there? Of course not. But it does mean at least two things, I would say. The first is that we should give glory to God. How great is our king that he can take even the world's persecution of us and use the opportunities afforded by it to serve his purposes. The world can beat up Paul and Silas. They can throw them in the inner prison. But God will perform a miracle and he'll use it to save the jailer. And not just the jailer, but his household too. Any retaliation we face is in perfect accordance with God's sovereign plan and his beautiful redemptive purposes. Second, I think we can say that when you suffer from being a disruptive disciple, you should consider what opportunities you might have to reach people that you may not reach otherwise. Your suffering can be a missional opportunity. Look at the jailers around you when you're suffering. When you face animosity from the world or you experience rejection from your family members or your friends, who might you be able to reach now as a result of all of this? And the second question is, who might you be able to reach better as a result of all of this? To our surprise, sometimes it can even be those same people who are persecuting us. We may be able to reach them better in the context of our suffering than we would without it. Because sometimes our response to the world when they despise us is one of the best ways that we can witness to the reality of the gospel. When we respond by praying and singing, or when we're repaying their hatred for us with love for them, we might just see God do a miracle in saving them too. Again, I, I think that our story could end well here with the jailer's salvation. God used the opportunity of our disruptive disciples' suffering to bring the gospel to that Roman jail. 
But God has more work for these men to do, so the story doesn't end there. Read in verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. Paul and Silas, they had returned to prison. And then the the lictors are sent on behalf of the magistrates, and they tell the jailer to release Paul and Silas. Verse 36, the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. No doubt this jailer, now a fellow brother in Christ, is glad that they can go free. And this might even be a customary Christian greeting that he sends them with on their way. Go in peace. Verse 37, But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. See, Paul, he wasn't about to leave that easily. He recognized that what the magistrates had done was a big mistake. It was a big mistake. And he wanted to make sure that they understood that. See, what the, what the magistrates did here in Acts 16 was illegal. They were likely allowed to have people beaten, but they could not beat Roman citizens without a trial. And Paul is saying that he and Silas are both Roman citizens, and yet they were publicly shamed, they were beaten, and they were thrown in prison without a legitimate condemnation. So Paul, he wants, he wants the magistrates to come out themselves and to personally release him and Silas. He wants his reputation with them, and perhaps the reputation of the church there too. He wants his reputation with them to be vindicated. So the, verse 38, the police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. That's an understandable response. Magistrates could get in very serious trouble for violating the rights of Roman citizens. It could result in them losing their office. And some have even suggested that it could have possibly impacted Philippi's standing as a Roman colony. Verse 39, so the magistrates came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. Apologize may not be the best translation. It's more likely that they spoke in a friendly or appeasing manner to Paul and Silas. And nonetheless, they, they still asked the missionaries to leave, maybe because they, just, they don't want any more trouble in the city. Verse 40, so they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And they, when they had seen the brothers, who knows, maybe there's a church at Lydia's house now, they encouraged them and departed. On to the next day they go. These disruptive disciples have more work to do. And so they set their sights on the next city. Acts 16 shows us the path of disruptive discipleship. We've seen first how God's grace disrupts the darkness through his followers. Disciples disrupt the darkness. That's what we want to do. And second, we've seen that disruptive disciples will suffer in this world. We will suffer and that suffering that we must accept for the cause of Christ. And third, we've seen how God can even use the opportunity of our suffering to redeem, to accomplish his purposes. Disciples are disruptive and will suffer, but be encouraged because God can use that suffering. Disciples are disruptive and will suffer, but God can use that suffering. That's the path for us. And before us on that path, we can see the footprints not only of Paul and Silas, 
but we can see the footprints of our trailblazer, Jesus Christ himself. He is the one that we follow. That's why we're on this path. We are, as Christians, disciples of our disruptive Lord. And it's his disruptive grace that we minister to our world in darkness. This world needs more gospel disruption. So I pray that we will go out and be a church filled with disruptive disciples. Let's go ahead and pray that together. Lord, we're so thankful that you became a man to disrupt the darkness that had enslaved us. You disrupted sin, you disrupted the power of Satan, and you disrupted hell itself. Lord, you have set us free, you have raised us to life with you, you have made us your followers. And Lord, part of being a follower of you is that we will disrupt the darkness too. Please, Lord, help us to be powerful, faithful, disruptive disciples. Help us to pray hard, to proclaim the truth, to share your life-transforming good news, to, to make disciples of others, to counsel others in accordance with your word, and to see the darkness pushed back, to see it disrupted, to make a mess of Satan's world system. Lord, we pray that you would do this for your glory, that you might be magnified as the one who is powerful by your grace to overcome all of this evil. And Lord, we pray that you would do that for the sake of all of those who are still enslaved themselves to their own sin and to the power of the evil one. Lord, we pray that you would burden our hearts, that you would give us a love for the lost that compels us to go out and to disrupt the evil industries that surround us. And Lord, we pray that you would be pleased that even when we suffer, we would respond by turning to you in song and prayer as Paul and Silas did, and that you would enable us, you would cause us to willingly embrace any suffering that we must face as a result of being disruptive followers of you. And we ask that even if we do suffer, you would be pleased to use that as a missional opportunity, perhaps to reach other people with your gospel that we may not have otherwise. Or all this we ask in your name and pray that it is in accordance with your will. Lord, please do these things by our spirit. Make us dependent on you. Make us more pleasing to you in these ways, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. Cambrian Park Baptist Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. If you would like more information on our church, please visit cpbchurch.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel, You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening.